You're listening to sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com. Go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, verse, verse 1. We're going to read the first 17 verses in just a moment. John chapter 5, verse 1. We have plenty of questions for God, and if we don't, those kids sure do. All right? Matter of fact, here's some recorded questions that kids have asked God. Jesus, is it very hard for you to love all of everybody in the whole world? There's only four people in my family, and I can never do it. Dear God, how come you didn't invent any new animals lately? We still have just all the old ones. When Jesus rose from the dead, did he punch out of his grave and say, this isn't the last of Jesus? I believe uh, Lucas James has actually asked that question before. Dear God, who draws the lines around the countries? God, could you put another holiday between Christmas and Easter? There's just nothing good in there right now. I guess he's not old enough to appreciate Valentine's Day. Did Jesus practice walking on water first? And how can I do it? If Jesus doesn't have a sister, why do I need one? (laughs) Dear God, did you mean for giraffe to look like that or was it an accident? And here's one. Dear God, here's a poem. I love you because you give us what we need to live. But I wish you would tell me why you made it so we have to die. Daniel, age eight. We got a lot of questions for God, don't we? A lot of them are silly, but some of them are profound, even asked by kids. I'm going to tell you, friend, God has a few questions for us too. (laughs) Actually, Jesus asks us over 300 questions in the Bible. And of the 180 questions that he has asked, he only answers eight or less. So for every question Jesus answers, he's asking over 20. And I'd like to know why. (laughs) So that's why we have a series now called Questions Jesus Asked. And since Jesus doesn't do anything by accident, his questions have purpose. They're meaningful. They teach us something. They teach us about the character of the God we worship. They teach us something about our own uh, selves, like a parent handing a child the thermometer to check their own temperature. (laughs) That's what questions do for us. And while we're not going to cover all 339 questions, I hope that in covering some of these, we'll at least get a, a feel for the line of questioning that Jesus has for us. And so this week, we turn to John chapter 5, Verse 1, and this true story is only found, you know, there's four Gospels, but this, this story is only found in the Gospel of John. And the question Jesus asks seems kind of silly, but it's actually very profound. He asked the question, do you want to be healed? And that's the question Jesus is going to ask you today. <laughs> do you want to be healed? And so I want us to stand in honor of God's word and read these verses together. John 5, if you don't have a Bible, the verses are on the screen. These are the words of God, more important than anything else I'll say today. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there's in Jerusalem by the sheep gate, a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. 
one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. <laughs> but he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed didn't know who it was for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. <laughs> the, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. So, you know, now he knew. Verse 16. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. I want to ask uh, Jimmy Turner to come and ask God's blessings on the message today. Jimmy. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I just ask you right now to uh, help us to focus on you, to focus on your word. Father, to really hear this question and to search our hearts and see how you would want us to respond. Lord, we are so thankful for the miracles that you performed while you were here and the ones you still perform today. Thank you for an opportunity to hear of your goodness. I pray you'd bless Went as he preaches in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jimmy. Y'all can be seated. There's a lot to learn from questions uh, that Jesus asks us. And today that question hits a little harder than last week because Jesus asks an invalid in John 5, 6, verse 6, do you want to be healed? Last week the question was, who touched me? Which was kind of a peculiar question for an all-knowing God. But it wasn't altogether crazy given the crowd. But when someone asks an invalid if he wants healing, that seems, you know, pretty obvious or rude or sarcastic or, or you know, cynical or something. But Jesus never asked, remember, he never asked questions without a purpose. And so I wanna look at this passage today and get a feel for why he was asking this question. First, I want us to see that the man's healing was impeded by several factors, all right? The man's healing was impeded. There will always be barriers between us and God. Now I know Jesus, uh, when he died on the cross, the veil was torn in the temple, uh, symbolic of us being able to go into the throne of God so there's no longer a barrier, but there are still literal you know, spiritual and physical barriers sometimes between us and God, even as Christians. We have a fallen world, we have the devil and all his temptations, our own selfishness, all of those things get in the way of our healing and our peace and our sanctification in Christ. Jesus did tell the man, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. So his ailment may have been a result of some personal sin. I'm not saying it, it we know for certain. And I'm definitely not saying that, that the Bible teaches all sicknesses related to our own sin. But there are lots of barriers today that keep us from true healing. So fast forward, John 5 verse 2, 
It's referring to this sheep gate. It's ironic that this, this story happens here. It was, the, it was the, I think, the northeast corner of the temple courtyard. And it's where all the animals were brought to be held for sacrifices, right? And this is where God's going to do, Jesus is going to do one of his early miracles. Now, the pool was called Bethesda in the local lang- native language. And, it, and based on a, a copper scroll that was found at Qumran, you know, an archaeological dig, the name of this area or pool seems to have been Bel Ezda, meaning house of the flowing, all right? Uh, And it was pretty big. Now, by the way, you may not have noticed, but we cut out the end of verse three and all of verse four in what we read because I don't believe those, I know they're not in the earliest manuscripts and I don't have time to unpack all of that uh, today, but that's why that's left out. I believe it was simply put there as trying to give commentary to what that pool was and what it did, this bubbling. So his ailment may have been a result of personal sin, but we don't know that, all right? But what we know is that this, this pool, it was 165 feet by 220 feet by 315 feet long. It was a big pool. And it was divided by a, a central partition and colonnades on uh, the, all four sides plus the partition, thus John's five porticos, which were probably like to shade the pool area. But this water was supposed to be able to heal this man. And apparently the first person in got the healing or had the highest chance of getting healed. And li- listen, today still in uh, India, there are temples everywhere where people just flock to be healed. There's invalids outside of uh, Buddhist temples on mountaintops and, and Hindu temples all over the place, waiting, hoping for some opportunity. And so this place was feel, filled, just packed full of needy people. But there were several things impeding this man from the healing he wanted. And the first thing that was stopping him was a false belief system. According to historians, there were these underground springs, right? And it was believed the waters intermittently had, would bubble up. And they had powers whenever that bubbling happened. You've seen a spring. Some of you have seen a spring in a creek. It bubbles up. Of course, if you've been to Yellowstone, you see those. And so, hence the meaning of Bethesda, house of the flowing. So, it, it, it's easy to, to see how there were there was some natural occurring stirring of the water that locals and legends attributed to the supernatural. And I believe Jesus knew this. I know he knew it because he knows all. And he knew that there were people who believed in holy rags and holy water and holy visions and holy corpses. That they can somehow have some mystical, magical power. And we know, of course, we know warm and cold waters have medicinal purposes, but to trust in false belief systems for our healing is foolish. And friend, we still have, uh, we think, well, that was back then. We still, to this day, have people trusting in man over God, the creation over the creator, a pill over God. I'm not against medicines. I'm just saying we put more faith in those things than we, than we do the Lord who gave the man the mind to make the pill, (laughs) right? And by the way, a lot of those medicines, I'm not here to preach against medicines, but a lot of those don't heal the soul, right? They don't heal anxieties and depression. Those ultimately come from the Lord. Hebrews chapter six says, therefore let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instructions about 
washings. What does that mean? I believe God included in his word and by example here in the story, the truths that teach the difference between water baptism or and like Jewish purification laws of the Old Testament or other false belief systems in water. And this story, I think, is Jesus' example of that. Baptism is always a way to identify with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. Going under the water symbolizes, just like my wedding ring symbolizes a covenant I made with my wife. If I take this wedding ring off, I'm still just as married, but it's, a, it's symbolic. All right? And so baptism is symbolic to death of our old life coming up is symbolic of our new life in him as Lord and Savior. Romans chapter 6, 1 through 12 teaches this. Baptism doesn't save, but it's the first act of obedience and evidence of Jesus being Lord and owner of our lives. 1 John 5, John chapter 14, verse 15. In Acts alone, there's 10 examples of the New Testament pattern of baptism. You know, you've got, if you, if you look in the book of Acts, and y'all listen, y'all don't mind crying babies. Hey, listen, you know, when I preached in India, there were always literal cattle lowing. I mean, we would have a, a tongue, a, a, a cow chewing its cud with its tongue stuck out in the window while I'm preaching. Women nursing. I mean, you had it all right there, front and center. This is pretty docile compared to that. Padded pews instead of dirt floors. But listen, here's the pattern. People would, there were four things. Ten times in the book of Acts, you can see this. They heard the gospel. They believed the gospel. They confessed in some way publicly and confessed their sins. And then they were immediately baptized. That's the New Testament pattern. All right? And I believe that Jesus was teaching water doesn't save. Even if it bubbles up, Jesus is saying, I'm the one that saves. If there's power in water, I put it there. Right? You know, he is the power. So he was impeded by false beliefs. Second, he was impeded by a crowd of need. The man is surrounded by needy people, but some needy people seem to resolve to stay that way, don't they? I'm shocked at uh, how many Christians have no true global assessment of real need. You know, it's tough when I came back after 10 years, eight years in, in India, and you, you see some teenager whining about a crack iPhone screen. <laughs> I, did, I tried my best not to punch him in the throat. I only failed twice. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Listen, do you know there are 193 countries in the world? 195 if you count uh, the Vatican City and Palestine. All right? So let's just say there are 195. Did you know in, if you do studies, you can look this up for yourself. I looked at over a dozen websites from Forbes to World Data, and all of them either put the U.S. number one in GDP or in the top 10, always. Good luck finding one where, where the U.S. is in top 10 out of 195 countries. And we're like second in natural resources, fifth in healthcare, real estate, technology, so on. But I still hear people, well, some of the wealthiest Christians I know, complain. And I'm not here to preach on complaining because that we're going to spend a whole year on that. I'm just highlighting the fact that need is everywhere. 
It's everywhere, especially with social media now where people vomit out their needs and you have, you know, GoFundMe pages, which I don't think are sinful, but some of the things that, <laughs> some of those GoFundMe pages are for ridiculously selfish things, right? But we, we feel, I believe a lot of people today feel impeded by anonymity, as if, you know, there's so, such a crowd, God's not going to notice me. One voice screaming in, in a crowd of desperation. Verse 3 says, there was a multitude of needy. And when Jesus asked in verse 6, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered, sir, I have, he didn't say yes. <laughs> he says, well, what does he do? He complains. I have no one to put me in the pool when the water comes up, right? Someone steps in front of me. I'm not able and darn those other people. So beyond his physical impediments, besides his false belief systems, there's this logistical matter of everyone jockeying for first place among the needy. God, I'm, can you, God will never get to me. You know what I mean? I'm kind of down there. You know, my need's so trivial compared. Church, listen, do not be discouraged by the sea of need around you. And I don't mean that it's not discouraging to see people suffer, but the transparent desperation of our country is the very thing that beckons the help of God and our prayers for revival. I don't know if you've been seeing these revivals on college campuses all over the country. That's what happened in the 70s. You know, it started with these young drug addicts come who have, they've sought the world they've, and there's nothing there. They've, they've reached the bottom and now it's, it's up. And I pray that that's what's coming for our country. But don't be discouraged, right? I fear for people who have no need or who see no need in their lives. They're walking around oblivious to their future that awaits them and everyone, every lost soul that does not belong to Jesus. And we need to see that need. This man's healing was impeded. But why the obvious question, do you want to be healed? Well, because second, their attention was needed. And I say their attention was needed because there's multiple, uh, there's multiple people in this, multiple cast in the story, right? There's the, of course, the needy man, but then there's the Pharisees. Uh, and then there's the other needy people around him. And then there's the, you know, the onlookers. But this, and because it was a, it was a festival day, we don't know which festival it was, but most festivals were kicked off by Sabbath. But this story's really, and I don't want y'all to miss this, this story's really all about proclaiming the deity of Jesus, meaning Jesus in this story is saying, I am God. And he's not just saying it, he's proving it. And here's what I love most about this story. If you don't remember anything else, remember this, this. Jesus chooses to prove his all-surpassing power, not by riding in with an army of angels, flexing his muscles, killing a bunch of radical Romans who are killing his people. Remember when Jesus was betrayed and arrested, Peter pulls out his concealed weapon, <laughs> lops that guy's ear off. And Jesus said in Matthew 26, 53, do you think that I can appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. You know, a legion 6,000. So he's saying, I can drop 72,000 angels down here. One of them could whoop all these people. I can drop 72,000 of them right now. That's not what this is about. So Jesus instead decides to reveal his deity, his equality with God under the loving healing umbrella of human need. 
It was the lowest place he could reveal the greatest power. It's just beautiful. And that's physical and spiritual. How's that for getting our attention? So first we look at the needy man. Now the fact that God sees this one man among this whole crowd is already a beautiful picture of the gospel already. I don't know all the reasons he chose them, but Jesus never lets a crowd get in the way of individuals. That may have been one of his purposes to teach us. We saw that last week when the, with the woman, right? But remember, she sought Jesus. But here, Jesus is demonstrating just who seeks who, right? With the woman with the flow of blood, he proved he's the Lord over time because he just, she thought she was seeking him, but he was lying in his pathway up with her trajectory, right? But with this healing, he proves he's the Lord of all. John 5, 18, if you don't believe this, I saved this verse for right here. It's the same passage. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This is his coming out party. I am God. I'm here to fulfill this, this whole Old Testament. That's me. This man had been sick for 38 years, and I think God chose him partly. He included him because he had the specific time frame on his life. How could everybody, so many numbers in Scripture are kind of general numbers. 3,000 were added to the church. I don't think it was exactly 3,000. It was just a general number they were saying. It was close to that, about, but not here. 38 years. And that detailed number tells us that unlike the woman last week, whose sickness was probably not known, you know, as a private matter, an issue with the flow of blood. It's kind of a private matter. He, he, Jesus actually wants her to tell her story. Remember, he asked her who touched me so she can tell her story. But this week, everyone already knew. They knew this man. Y'all, there were probably generations, like fathers and sons and daughters, <laughs> two, three generations that knew this man. Oh, yeah. Bill. Mike, whatever his name was, right? He's been sitting there forever. But his plight was hopeless. And it seems that he's given up or given in to his illness. And church, listen, just because there are a lot of believers in here, followers of Christ, it doesn't mean that we're never tempted to become prisoners of our own despair. <laughs> you ever feel like a prisoner of your own despair? Whoa, despair and agony on me. What chance is there for this guy to ever get down to the pool with everybody jockeying for first among the needy? And even if he does make it, I mean, it doesn't always work, right? So Jesus' question, do you want to be made well, seems kind of unnecessary or rude. But listen, how else is Jesus going to assess if this man still has a flicker, a grain of hope left in him? Does the man even want to go home? Does he want to take up the grinding responsibilities of everyday life? Will he hear? Will he obey? I love how one author put this. So often, people succumb to their illness, bedding down with their alcoholism or heart trouble or partial paralysis or whatever. They become psychological and spiritual invalids, retreating within themselves, avoiding responsibilities, becoming more and more self-centered as they demand sympathy from others. Every now and then, in dealing with this kind of defeated person in the office or at the hospital bed or at a luncheon appointment, I've asked that question, do you want to be made well? Otherwise, we'll just go on visiting, skirting the issue. <laughs> 
Sometimes the response is puzzlement. What do you mean? Sometimes it's anger. And every now and then, an urgent, yes, come on, let's go. Something in this crippled man clicked. Deep within, there was a small opening. Perhaps this friendly stranger, Jesus, could do something for him. He put himself under the authority of Jesus. But even then, there's a note of self-pity in his answer. He has waited in vain so long, one gets the feeling he's become a permanent loser, a complainer who was avoided by others. We know people like this, don't we? If we're being honest, there's somebody. You just kind of, you know, they're coming in, you're, hey, you're avoiding them like the plague. Because you know if they get you, all they're going to do, oh, despair and agony. Jesus sees that small glimmer of hope and cuts through all the cripples' hopelessness. Jesus gives a simple command, rise Take up your bed and walk. And the quiet, creative power of God begins to flow through his crippled limbs and spirit. And once again, he knows the warmth of life. Church, God's asking the same question to you. Do you want this? Do you want true healing? Are you bedded down with your addictions and your temptations and whatever your spiritual paralysis are? If the answer is yes, yes, I want healing, then listen to the words of Jesus on the Sabbath day in front of all his accusers looking for a reason to convict him. John 5 verse 8, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Immediate healing. And I'm not saying a person can't, you know, use a Nicorette patch to stop smoking over a three month period. And I'm not saying that men that are addicted to porn can't download that Covenant Eyes app that has accountability on their phones and electronic devices to try to kick the habit of porn. And I'm not saying, and I, I certainly have never seen a person who struggles with their weight want to like drop 50 pounds in 24 hours. If that happens, it's not healthy, right? But I can tell you this, I do believe in every one of those cases, the determination to take up our bed and walk toward that goal with a spiritual motive, that decision is immediate. And obviously God's word would apply this to more than a New Year's resolution or some physical healing. Some of us have bedded down too long within our lost souls under the excuse that I'm too wicked to save. Shame on you. You'll always be too wicked to save. I'm too wicked to preach. You're too wicked to be here. But God in his mercy saw otherwise. That's the glory of the cross. That's the joy that are on all these freak Christians. Why are you weirdos so happy all the time? World's going to hell in a handbasket and you're smiling about it. No, we're smiling because we're forgiven. And our eternity, our future, our home is not on this busted place. We're going somewhere else where the streets are made of gold and there is no more sin, no more tears. I love Charles uh, Spurgeon's words here. God's grace only works on a conscious mind, not a senseless one. And I would just interject, wake up, God's trying to get your attention. Jesus saves men who have the use of their senses and his salvation is a work upon a quickened intellect and awakened affections. Jesus brought back the wandering mind with the question, wilt thou be made whole? 
And I'm scared that some believers have cuddled up in their little blanket of sinful, guilty, defeated misery too long, and it's time to get up. Get up! You serve a risen Savior. He's not dead. He's alive. He's not a wooden thing on a shelf. He's a moving, living, active God. You don't need assistance to some mythical holy water. You need to obey the commands of Jesus, trust in him for forgiveness and faith and eternal life. Call on his name and he'll save you. Jesus asks questions to get the attention of the needy man who's asleep in his sorrow. But Jesus was also intentionally asking that question with an earshot of his enemies. He knew those Pharisees would be watching him. He did everything on purpose. They're enemies of the cross and he asks them. This is what we'll call the prideful man, the heading of the prideful man. We just wrapped up Leviticus 23 two weeks ago, the seven feasts which, which were really sewn together with this weekly Sabbath. Well here, John 5 verse 1, after this there was a feast of the Jews. And scholars say in chapter 5 uh, that it not only opens the festival cycle, but it, it also introduces a theme that will weave its way through the gospel placing Jesus on trial, not simply at the end of his life, but rather continually. Have y'all ever thought of that? The gospel begins with Jesus on trial and it never stops until the cross. Jesus' arrival in the world forces men and women to take stock of his coming, to examine and to decide the truth of his mission and his word. In this sense, Jesus is on trial in every episode. In fact, one of the ways that John introduces the miracles of Jesus is to offer them as evidence. These miracles are evidence of his deity. And so why mention this here? Because this story and Jesus' question wasn't just for the individual who needed physical healing. By the way, there's no clear evidence in this passage that that man received salvation. In other passages of healing, we know clearly, you know, that he called on the name of the Lord. We see that. Your sins are forgiven, you're, you're made whole. And he goes and shares the gospel like the woman last week. But that didn't happen here. I pray he was, but the text doesn't clear, clarify that. Jesus was there to prove that he's Lord of the Sabbath, Lord of all, equal to God in every way. And that, my friend, begs it's an eternal fact that begs the attention of everybody. I love how one commentary described this. Jesus is Lord over sickness in John 5, 1 through 9. That sickness isn't fake healing, right? 38 years of sickness prove that. For this to have been uh, fake, the man would have had to begin the trick six years before Jesus was born, <laughs> right? It's not a faith healing, because the man's reply is complaint, not faith. So it wasn't a faith healing. I, if you just have more faith, you'll be healed. I'll tell you what it is though. It's a free healing, what I call common grace. Right? All people receive common grace from God because he provides you life and breath and everything. Right? Matthew 5.45 says, he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, sends rain on the just and on the unjust. It wasn't fake or faith healing, but it was free and it was also full. He didn't need physical therapy. <laughs> he just got up and walked. Jesus chose to heal on the Sabbath, the one day that that man wasn't expecting to be healed. Even if he was healed, he was a Jew and by law he couldn't get up and take up his mat. 
<laughs> it was probably the least day of, of his expectation, not to mention that he's been that way for 38 years. So Jesus showed his power as being Lord over the Sabbath, Luke 5, 9 through 18. Jesus wanted the attention of the Pharisees, the self-righteous, hypocritical folks who cared more about a misinterpretation of the law than the miracle of the man being healed or the miracle of Jesus come in the flesh, God in the flesh, coming to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies. The the needy man's attention was focused on self-pity, but the Pharisees' attention was consumed by his own pride. Controllers of all rule, men who set up their own unbiblical self-constructed systems through which they rule others. Same attitude of Satan in Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you're fallen from heaven, O day star, son of David. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Listen, friend, faith in Jesus is surrender. It's not (laughs) self-appointment. Jesus needed the attention of these Pharisees because he was about to drop a bomb of truth on their self-righteous little souls. John 5, 15, the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working and I am working. Now, church, don't miss this. This is like Thor's hammer blow, right? Jesus could have rightfully set them straight doctrinally, right? Exodus 20, God gave the law. Uh, Jesus said in Mark 2, 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The work they were to refrain from was their regular employment, right? Right? Acts of mercy, works of kindness that benefited other people fit the spirit of the command exactly. To forbid them was a complete and utter perversion of what God intended. But Jesus doesn't use that as his argument, does he? He could have gone back to the Old Testament and had a debate, a biblical debate, and owned every one of them publicly. He made them look stupid. That's not what he does. He clarifies, instead of clarifying the purpose of the Sabbath, his defense was that God was working on the Sabbath. They they would have had to agree with that. No, no, No Jewish Pharisee would say God took a day off. So they would have had to agree with that. He's working. And then he says, I'm working. So if God is working, it's perfectly legitimate for Jesus to work as well. And we need to understand Jesus's logic here. All right. He's not saying that because God works on the Sabbath, all anyone can work on the Sabbath. He's saying because God works on the Sabbath, I can work on the Sabbath because I am God. (laughs) Church, I don't know what impedes you today. I don't know if it's false beliefs or bedding down in your own self-pity or a rebellious defiance to the deity of God. The Lord, what we call lordship salvation. He gets to control it all or he gets to control none. I don't know what it is, but I pray in the name of Jesus that his Holy Spirit would break through whatever that barrier is, those, in, those impediments, and he would break into your life and you would get up, take up your bed and walk. May it be so. Would you stand? Father, we 
really can't ever fully wrap our mind around all the intimate, intricate details that you are constantly pouring into our lives, Lord. We, we really, our minds cannot fathom you. You're above us. And Lord, yet in your word, you just, you make it come alive with your intentionality, your care, your concern. Lord, we proclaim today that we believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. We believe you are the one and only true God. There can only be one or you're not God. There can't be, can't be two, can't be three. There's only one who takes away sin. There's only one that we didn't have to go up to, knock on the door of the temple, burn our incense, drop our offerings in to try to please you in hopes that you might take us to heaven. You're the only one that came down to earth for us. And so, Father, we, we praise you. We worship you as unique in every way. And I pray today that if whatever impedes us from coming to you in repentance and faith, you would break through it and help us understand your love. If there's someone here today that does not know Christ, they would call on the name of Jesus, proclaim your name, and be saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. I also pray if there's people here today that want to make this, this church family called this busted group of people called Piperton their home where they can sign up to serve and, and volunteer in some way. Only God knows what that would be, but Lord, if they want to be involved in this family in some way and serve you through their local church, I pray they would come and join our church, Lord. And maybe some people here already know you, but they just haven't followed through with baptism. Of the water, the symbolic meaning of being born again. Lord, I pray they would come and be obedient to you today in Jesus' name. Amen. This has been sermon audio from Piperton Baptist Church in Piperton, Tennessee. For more information on how you can get connected with PBC, please visit www.pipertonbaptist.com.